And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello everyone, John here. Now you may have noticed that you're hearing this on a Wednesday rather than a Monday this week and that is because Wednesday is going to become the new permanent home for the TIFO Football Podcast. Don't worry, the show isn't changing. You can still expect more of the same analysis and interviews from myself and the team every week. It just comes out on a Wednesday instead of a Monday now. And if you're looking to scratch your Monday content itch, make sure to check out our video content on TIFO or The Athletic FC. Or why not try one of The Athletic's other brilliant podcasts like The Totally Football Show or The Athletic Football Podcast. And so without further ado, here is the first show of the new era. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and oh look, it's Mike Zimmerman here with me as always. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. How are you? Yeah, exceptionally well, uh, not least because we've recorded uh, one of my favourite episodes so far, I think, in this week's episode. I chatted to Simon Goody, who is a youth coach at Atletico Madrid, and he has had a really, really interesting career pathway so far to make it uh, to that position. You've listened to the podcast, Mike. What do you make of the episode? Well, I know a lot of our, our listeners here on the Tifa Football Podcast are very interested in whether it's getting a coaching license or maybe the pathway. And I think you and Simon really, you know, fleshed out his journey and kind of what he was looking for in different jobs. And and I thought the most fascinating thing was he was telling a story about doing an interview in Spain and whether or not he should speak English or Spanish. And I, I think that that goes to show you that all these coaches that go across Europe and all over the world for these jobs have to also adjust their lifestyle as well, not only their their coaching and, and work ethic. Yeah, it's a really, really fun story. I think the biggest aspect of that story is the fact that Simon applied four times to try and get onto the UEFA A license course. Uh, and in the end, it was easier for him to actually move to Spain, learn the culture, learn the language uh, and join a club's coaching there as well to get onto that course. So really, really interesting story. And I recommend that yeah, anyone listens to that story. And the best way of doing that is by keeping your podcast app running right now because that is the next thing that you're going to hear. Simon, it's great to have you on. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. No, it's good to be here, John. Thank you very much for having me. Now, obviously, the top line in your coaching journey is the decision to move to Spain in part to complete your UEFA A coaching license after four attempts to get enrolled on a course in the UK. I don't want to focus too much on that right now. We will get to it in the course of the podcast, but I do want to get a sense of just how hard work it can be to get to the highest level of coaching. I think your journey to uh, Atletico Madrid really offers a good example of how much time, effort and money is required to make it. So I think the best thing for us to do is just talk through your story from the very beginning and we'll stop off at different points to talk about different topics as they arise. So let's begin at the very beginning. What was it that got you into football? What's your early football story? Wow. Um, I think generally for me, when I left school, um, I think generally, you know, you, you have a big love of, of sport, uh, especially as a, as a young lad. Um, and I remember leaving school and just wanting to carry on with sport. And I was fortunate enough to, to live near a sports centre. And I guess probably my earliest 
memories that I had was starting to do a an MVQ, like an apprenticeship in, in sports coaching. So that was when I was kind of 15, 16, just left secondary school and just started to kind of explore a little bit of what it was like to be in a sporting environment, to do a little bit of coaching, go and do a few little bits of after school clubs, like, you know, your multi-sport stuff, which quite a lot of people in the sport industry, especially coaching wise, have sort of started in that sort of vein, if you like. And that's kind of where I started straight out of school, if you like. And what level did you play football to? So I, I probably class myself as a, as a non-ex kind of player. Never really played at a high level. Uh, I did enjoy playing, but I don't know. Just for me, I always got a lot more enjoyment out of watching games, uh, analysing games, and then coaching. So the playing side for me never really was never really a big uh, urge for me to really try and pursue. And I wasn't that good as, as a player, if I'm honest, either. So you kind of know early on, you know, if you're going to have any success. And I knew that playing for me wasn't going to be that. That's, that's interesting because I think a lot of people assume that the better the player, the more likely they are to be a good coach. But there must be a sense in which you think that works to your advantage as well, that you have uh, uh, an upside from simply not having played to, to that higher level. Yeah, I think, you know, you look at the amount of career coaches there are now coming into the game. You look at the younger coaches that are coming through and they haven't got that extensive playing background. And it is different. I think when you when you speak to managers, coaches, you know, the experiences that you need to be a top coach. OK, there are elements, you know, there's, there's no doubt that as, a, as an ex-pro, you do have a bit of an advantage, you know, you you've played at the top level, you've probably had experience of some amazing coaches in your playing pathway, but it is different. And I think the advantage that I've had so far in my career today, I guess, is having spent so many years coaching. You know, I've, I've, I've learned how to do the, the shoelaces, if you like. Uh, I've worked in uh, different clubs, different environments with high ability, low ability, all abilities, boys, girls, men, women, like you name it, I've been in those scenarios. And I think ultimately as a coach, you have to deal with many different scenarios and situations that happen at a drop of a hat and you have to adapt. And I think coaching, one of the key attributes that you need to have as a, as a success, successful coach is the ability to adapt. And I think as a, as a career coach, if you like, if I put myself in that sort of bracket, that would be one key attribute through all my experiences that I've got that, that kind of gives me that advantage. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and so the question, I suppose, that follows from that is when did you decide that coaching is for me? Was that a conscious decision that you made or is it something you just sort of found yourself falling into? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think, I mean, as I said before, I kind of really enjoyed playing, but I knew probably early on that I wasn't going to be a top player and I just really grew in love really early on with coaching. Uh, loved working with young players, loved working on on football, creating sessions and just that idea of educating and teaching. I just, I just loved and I guess it's a little bit of both kind of. I found myself there a little bit and I also was like, okay, I really enjoy this. And I guess, you know, from early ages of 15, 16, when I left school, I was like, okay, do you know what? This is this is going to be what I want to do forever, you know? Mm -hmm. 
You've mentioned that you started out working at a leisure center, but you very quickly started working for a company called Football 2000, which is a private co- coaching company. And I think that's quite interesting. What what impact did working for a, a company like that have on you? I guess there's a lot of people who go in that kind of route, but I suppose most of the people that I come across, they tend to go in through, you know, c- community coaching for a club and then and then working their way up from there. Yeah, I, I think I was quite fortunate in that sense where, like I said, I started at that leisure center. I then... My, I had a really good mentor through college who was really, really supportive and helped kind of guide me a little bit through some some different options and pathways. And I went and found a private company that wasn't far from, from where I lived that had a good reputation in the local community, doing schools, multi-sports, etc. And uh, I went along there, got involved with, with them as a company and really enjoyed it. Uh, they were obviously very football-focused, alongside a multi-sports approach within different primary and, and secondary schools, which for me worked out really well, not only having that sort of football focus, which I loved, but also then diversifying in terms of teaching multi-sports, cricket, rugby, hockey, all of those different sports that actually, when I look back at my career and my knowledge, I actually take as a big plus because it just gives me opportunities to look at the way that I structure some of my sessions a little bit differently uh, alongside other sports. And then hopefully that focuses my uh, attention on, okay, how can I better serve the players that I'm coaching from a football perspective with some different ideas from different sports? Yeah, it might be good to talk a little bit about creativity at this point, because um, at the moment I'm going through my coaching badges. I'm only very early on in in the route through the qualifications, the the FA route uh, and then the UEFA route. Um, but one of the, I think one of the big problems that you always have when you go through those kind of routes is it's so easy to end up, you know, with a one size fits all coach at the end of it, right? Where you're telling them this is how you should coach, and rather than taking on the the ability to be creative about how you're coaching, you you just take the lessons of well, this is how they do the session, so I'll do the session that way. But clearly, creativity is a very important aspect to coaching, not least because you're not simply trying to get uh, footballers to play the sport well, but you're also trying to get people to enjoy it enough to play it to a level where they can improve as well. So how important do you think creativity is to you as a coach? Yeah, I think it's massive. Um, I think when you work with players for for so many weeks, for so many different uh, number of sessions within that time frame, your, your role as a co- coach is to diversify sessions, mix up sessions so that it's fresh, it's testing those players. And I think... You know, some of the experiences that I've got, you know, I've worked in different environments, a little bit touching on what you spoke about there. You know, I've worked at a number of different clubs, a number of different environments, and you pick up different things from all of those different clubs, all of those different uh, private entities. And those experiences that you gain shape you in a way that forces you to have to, I, I don't like the term necessarily thinking outside the box. I think, you know, why are we trying to be within that in the first place? I think you have to always... Think about how you can challenge your players in so many different ways and create sessions and practices that are always going to push them and have that creative element, if you like, to to you as a coach and then to the players. Because ultimately, you know, you see how football is now compared to 10, 15 years ago. And you look at all the teams now when they come up against superior teams, okay, they're defending deep, etc low block etc and and it's like right you need those players to think and find different solutions to the challenges that are in front of them and sometimes you can't do that as a coach or a manager on the sideline 
unless you've got those players that are able to come up with those different moments. And I think that's where, as a coach, you can impart some of that thinking on those players to take those situations a little bit by the scruff of the neck and go, okay, look, we've, we've done some of that work in training. Think about ways that you can have success in those moments. Around this point in your career, you go to Colchester United. Before we talk about Colchester, what level of coaching qualifications do you have at this point? So I just got my UEFA B. I think I finished my UEFA B when I was 19, 20. Um, so quite early, I'd got uh, quite a, a good level of coaching qualification. I think I wouldn't have been the, I don't think I'd have been the youngest person to have that qualification at the time, but I would have definitely been in the, the bracket of um, a very young coach having a UEFA B at that stage. So that would be what and I had. And at that point, this is in the old system where you would do the FA level one, the FA level two, and then UA for B. Correct. Um, yeah. Okay. And those experiences you had doing the going through the official uh, coaching pathway there, did you do them off your own bat? You, you didn't, do, or did you do them through work? Was it something that you had to go out there and do yourself? We yeah, we had a little bit of support. I can remember coming through. We had a little support from from the clubs, uh, a little bit of financial support, and then obviously they would support you through the through the courses. Um, so yeah, the, the the club at the time and the, the companies that I were with were quite supportive because they knew obviously if, if they support you in these qualifications, they're going to get better employees and uh, obviously it's a win-win for everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. So then you end up uh, going to, um, to Colchester United from there. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your uh, your first full time role working with with Colchester United. What was the experience like of starting out working for a club like that? Yeah, fantastic. To be fair, um, really, really great experience at Co United. I had four fantastic years at the club, uh, and I guess I was quite lucky in that sense. So when I came into Colchester United, Co United were just had some really good links with some FA tutors. Uh, and this was at the same time where the youth awards and the youth modules just started to get released uh, across the country. Now we what, were very, what are those? What are the youth awards for the listeners who won't know what they are? So these are uh, specific courses that are tailored for people who are working in the youth uh, youth sector of football. So grassroots coaches, academy coaches that are working, you know, under six, seven, eight, nines all the way up to sort of under 16s. That was the focus of those courses. Um, really, really bespoke courses, really fantastic in terms of uh, how you develop the player, how you develop the, the coach, the practice, how you create a positive environment for the players. You know, all those sorts of aspects that as a coach, you you do learn a little bit along the way, but these th those courses when they came out were, were really, really vital for me going into my first sort of academy experiences uh, in terms of how to tailor sessions, how to progress sessions, how to change the numbers, the size of practices, and the, the effect that then had on the players, the difficulty, and then obviously the, the short, medium and, and long-term progress of, of those players. And Coach United at that time were a bit of a trial club. Uh, we had John Oldpress, Peter Vivian, uh, who were kind of initiating those courses. So I kind of felt quite lucky at the time to be one of the first coaches in the country to to go through that that process. 
Hmm. And I think you meant, I heard you mention on a podcast the other day that you took 17 years between your UEFA B <laughs> and your UEFA A. So obviously there's a mitigating circumstances in there, which we will talk about later on. But clearly you've done all of your FA and UEFA coaching up until that point where you start working in the professional game. And then you spend 17 years not doing any qualifications that that suggests that a lot of the learning that is done by coaches is done on the job so how important for you was that experience of working for Colchester United in terms of actually developing your ideas about what a coach should be what a coach should do and what it should all look like yeah I mean the, the academy at Colchester was when I was there was really really focused on developing youth the the methodology and the philosophy of the club was that 50% of the first team playing staff would be from the academy. Um, I know that's not quite where it is in terms of right now, but the idea from the academy was, right, we need to prepare these players to play at a really high level to then end up playing for the first team. So I wouldn't say we ever had the pressure in that sense, but we knew that the, the first team and the club were really passionate about youth development. And I think then that drives you as a, as a youth coach in, in those years to go, okay, what I'm doing every single session, every week, every month, every year that I'm with these players is for this reason. They, we want them, the chairman, the club, want them to get to the first team. Uh, and and being involved at obviously my hometown club, it meant a lot more to me. The support structures were there. I knew people from, from obviously coaching before at Football 2000 and those networks are obviously helpful. Uh, you feel more comfortable you're well supported. I mean, I felt very well supported at, at Co United when, when I was there. Um, and you just uh, are supported in your journey. I mean, I was really new as a coach. My my first experience was to go in with the under-13s with uh, an ex-professional called John McGreal. Um, played at a number of clubs in the Football League. Played at a really, really good level. So I can remember starting my first season with him. And I'm like, OK, this guy has, uh, has played, you know, hundreds of, of professional games. So to go in with someone of that experience from a playing career and to see his journey as a coach coming off the back of a playing career to mine as, as kind of coming from a career coach, I took really good learning from that, uh, from him. And I have to say he was fantastic with me in my, in my progress and development in that first year for sure. You spent a lot of your career working with young players, uh, both in the men's and the women's game as well. And interesting hearing you talking there, just you can hear it coming through that there's a very different focus for youth uh, development coaches insofar as it's not just about trying to get the best out of them at any one moment of time when, when the team are competing. It's about actually thinking to the future as well. That's clearly something that I think you enjoy because you've worked with, with young players all the way through your career. Uh, so yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. What's that, what's that feeling like of, of not only thinking, right, how do we get the team to perform at the weekend, but also having in the back of your mind, these are players who, if we coach them well, it can massively impact, impact the way that they enjoy the game and play the game to, to the highest levels, right? Yeah, I mean, it's all a process. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be a, a PE teacher as well. So having that extra experience in terms of a different way, uh, a model of, education if you like gives me kind of different perspectives on that that long-term process that we're going to ask these players to to fulfill but the motivation you have as a, as a coach um you know I'm, I'm super passionate about education love you know especially at the younger age groups the, the progress you see in some of these young players 
when they're eight years old, when they're nine, 10, 11, 12, by the information you impart on them, the experiences you, you give them and the support that they need, you know, how you see them progress over those weeks in those games uh, and you see them moving up through the age categories really is a, a special thing as, as a youth coach to be able to see those players take on board your information and you see them not always have success. And obviously that's the, that's a, the journey, isn't it, as, as, a, as a player and as a coach. And it's your role to support those players in the positive moments, for tough moments. And the, the other aspect of that as a coach is I think it's really important to, to stay balanced. You know, there's going to be moments where the players have not good success and there are going to be moments where they they don't have success. And how you deal with those players in those moments is is obviously key and for you to be as balanced as possible. So they don't get too high when they have a really good game and they don't get too disheartened when they have a poor a poor game or a difficult game. Um, you know, I can remember many games at the academy at Colchester uh, and we would come up against the likes of Arsenal, for example. Uh, Category 1 Academy, London, you know that you're going to go there and it's going to be extremely difficult. So how you prepare and how you coach those players in terms of their expectations, their their mindset in those games, you know, so difficult to try and compete with those players on a, on a scoreline perspective, but you have to try and give them objectives to try to reach so they can feel that they can still get something out of that game. It's not a case of, well, we're just going to go and we're going to get smashed and we're not going to get anything out of it because you're missing a learning opportunity if you do that as a coach. Um, but obviously you understand that there's going to be tough moments for those players and how you manage those expectations as a coach is is vital. Hmm. Yeah. Following on from that, would you then recommend anyone who is going through their coaching badges or getting coach experience, wanting to go into coaching to spend some time at least working in youth development? Yeah, I mean, youth development, uh, and I think you're starting to see it a little bit more now with some of the ex-pros. I think depending on uh, the support that those ex-pros have got when they come out of playing, the experiences that you gain as a, as a coach and as a person going through coaching youngsters, whether it be in the boys' game or the girls' game, that ability to transfer your thoughts, your information from, from here to those players, how you communicate that information is crucial because it's different in, to, to a senior level. You need to talk to the players in a very, very specific way, obviously in a very professional way, uh, where in a first-team environment, the language is obviously going to be very different and that is obviously, you know, youth development is not going to be appropriate. But how you stage those uh, different moments of learning, how you impart that information from, from working in academies, for me, and I've seen a number of ex-professionals come into the academy environment and coach and talk about it so positively. I think for any young coach out there or even ex-pro who's thinking about going into the coaching pathway, there's, there's, there's nothing that can support you as a coach as well as being in the youth development pathway at some, at some stage. Mm-hmm. So from Colchester United, you actually end up going to university. 
you go to Southampton and you study for a football studies degree. Um, so you've gone at this point in your career from working for a private company to working for a club to then learning about football in an academic context. And I think one of the things that I love about your career is there's just so much diversity to it. You've, you've just done, you've done everything that's possible to, to do. But what did you learn in particular from going through the academic route? Did you pick up stuff that you're still benefiting from now? Yeah, massively. I mean, I, I think... You know, I've got no embarrassment in, in, in saying stuff like this, but when I was younger, I really found it difficult and I was really a little bit uh, unsure about going down university. Um, you know, it's very academic, wasn't quite sure if that was the right thing for me. But I, I love challenges. I love trying to broaden my experiences. I love learning, as I said before. And university was sort of, for me, the next stage. I'd always had ideas in my head that maybe going down a teaching route alongside my coaching might be something I wanted to do. Um, not only I felt it would be something that would benefit my coaching, but I also like teaching and I like working with young people and trying to see them progress. So the football studies course for me at Southampton kind of gave me that platform to better understand all the different facets of the game. You know, we looked at psychology, we did a module on Spanish, we looked at a little bit of sports science, we looked at the coaching aspects, we looked at the history of the game, you know, we looked at all of those different elements that when, when you look at football, you don't always necessarily see. But the, the course at Solent was really, really uh, crucial for me to really break down all of the different aspects of the game. Look at, right, OK, we're going to look at analysis. Right, how do I better analyse a game? How can I better look at the football development structure of a club? How can I you know, improve my knowledge to go, right, if I go into a club at whatever level, what are the, some of the management tools that I need to utilise to have success and, and, and go from there? And, you know, the, the course for me was really, really positive in that sense to broaden all of my aspects and all of my knowledge of, of the game. Uh, and I think the course has got a really good reputation in, in doing that. And some of the students that have come through have obviously gone on to really, really good careers within the game. So it's got a, a good... Um, a good reputation. And at this point, you're still coaching, right? Yep. Yeah, so um, I did my first year at university and I stayed at Colts United. So I would spend um, Sunday evening till uh, Thursday lunchtime in Southampton. And then on the Thursday afternoon, I'd drive back to Colchester. I would do the academy session Thursday evening. I'd do a development centre session on Friday second academy session on a Saturday morning and then we'd have a game on a Sunday and then Sunday afternoon after the game I would go back to university so that was sort of my first year uh, uni which you kind of get away with a little bit first year uni is not obviously the 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 exams don't go towards your final your final mark for university and I thought well do you know what I don't want to leave academy football I wanted to try to do both it was a little bit um, it was a fair bit of travel but it was something that I didn't want to give up yeah, I think this is a really important point to make because there will be people listening who will be attracted to uh, going into in, going in and doing their coaching badges, finding clubs to work with, etc. And one of the things that I think that I has always surprised me about whenever I've coached or gone through the uh, the, the coaching pathway stuff as I'm um, now, it's just a huge amount of effort, right? It, you have to really put the time and the effort and the hard yards in. Um, talk to us a little bit about that because you've definitely had to grind at times in your career, right? Yeah, I mean, as you say, football's very complicated um, and sometimes you can be fortunate or lucky that you might know some people in a club nearby where you actually live. 
sometimes you don't and sometimes you know you have to you have to travel um and you know the time effort commitment that you need to put in you know there's so many grassroots coaches that are out there that are giving up so much free time alongside full-time jobs you know the, the grassroots in 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 england for example and in every country just wouldn't happen without those volunteers so you talk about giving up time and effort you know those volunteers are um you know giving up so much but for, for me you know when i went to my first year at uni i was just like i cannot leave being in a professional club and i don't know people in southampton or that region to to to, to change straight away and i i was like well, i need to carry on my development i'm still learning a lot at coach united and it was just a sacrifice that i knew that i needed to make obviously it was expensive to travel back and forth from southampton to Coventry. it's not obviously um close it's about a three-hour drive one way and then obviously you've got fuel and all that on top but i just for me the 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 knowledge the experience just for me just never really came into question that i would do anything else so yeah you get to the end of university you spent some time working with fulham and bournemouth while you're there but i think very soon after that you decide that you want to go to spain so why is that what was that decision all about i kind of came to a point when i finished my university studies um that I was like, okay, I kind of feel like I, I want to just have something different. Like, I'd spent already four, five, six, six odd years in academy football in, in England. And I was like, okay, I want to just explore a little bit and know a little bit more about something different. And I thought, well, now I'm finishing university, it's a good opportunity to, to go somewhere different. Um, and I'd done a module in Spanish in university and... Uh, as you do, you know, when I grew up, I always loved the the Spanish style of football, uh, as as a lot of Brits have done, always had a holiday somewhere in Spain, as, as you do, and just kind of started to grow in love with with the country in Spain and Spanish football. And I was just like, do you know what, if, if I don't go now, maybe I won't. So I basically finished my course and was like, right, I'm going to go. So I managed to make a, a contact with... Um, someone who was already in Madrid I sent uh, letters to every Premier League team every Championship team to say that look I'm going to Madrid um, and would you like any scouting done for example um, so actually I had a couple of clubs come back to me uh, Crystal Palace was one of those I can remember going to into meet a guy called Tim uh, at Crystal Palace and just said, look, you know, I'm going to be going over to Madrid in a couple of weeks. Happy to do a little bit of scouting for you if, if you want. They were really receptive to that. Uh, so I, I did some scouting for, for them when I was over in, in Madrid. Uh, also done some some teaching English, which is not very glamorous, but I, ne- I needed a way to, to kind of get me by while I was out there. Um, stayed, stayed for just under a year. And then you know, went and watched loads of different sessions uh, here in Madrid, different academy sessions, different grassroots sessions, and just wanted to take notes. I just you know, loved the, the methodology of Spanish football and just wanted to learn. Uh, so I can remember just travelling all over Madrid. You know, As soon as I finished uh, my teaching, get on the train, get on the metro, go to this club, go to that club, and just take notes and, and watch different youth sessions uh, first team sessions at, at Rio, which is a, a club here that isn't too difficult to, to watch with the way the facilities are. It's quite easy to watch from the outside or or sometimes sneak in. 
Uh, so kind of go and watch some of those and just learn. And that was that was kind of a good nine, ten months of just every single day watching sessions and, and being out and about. So as you've mentioned in your first stint in Spain, you're very much looking to just experience as much Spanish football as you could. You did a lot of scouting and observed a lot of coaching sessions with clubs. How easy did you find it to actually integrate into those clubs at that point? Was it something that you found uh, that those clubs were open to, the idea of you coming along and observing sessions? Yeah, I mean, some clubs were. Um, for example, Rio Vecano was, as I said, really easy to get into. Uh, the facilities are not that well um security etc is is a little bit loose so it's very easy to one watch from outside um and also get into facility uh so that was really easy um, is this before andoni areola or did you get to watch them at andoni areola no, ball i don't think i did uh i want to say it was uh paco Pacanist. yeah i think it was him um so i watched quite a few sessions of of his and then um it was interesting uh, I'd never managed to the, the facilities at Atletico, for example, uh, in the northwest are really, really difficult one to get to and two to get into. So I never managed to get into there. Um, but I actually managed to somehow get um, an invite from from one person that I know to Real Madrid. Uh, and Real Madrid basically run these what were called white weeks which basically invited coaches to come in, observe academy sessions for a week um, and, and and do that. So I was lucky enough to get onto that. So I did that uh, for a week and got to know a couple of people and obviously was like, look, I'm, I'm here in Madrid. If it's possible, it'd be great to come along and watch some more sessions at a, at a later point. Thankfully, they were very open with me. I built a really good relationship with the guy who was who was sort of translating the the week that I went on to first. So they were quite happy with me to go in and watch watch some academy sessions during a number of weeks, which was which was good. Um, and that was sort of my my year in that sense of of watching all those sessions. And obviously at the time, uh, I've got to be a little bit careful what I say because obviously I'm working at Aleti now. But it was really <laughs> good to go in and, and watch all of those sessions at Real Madrid because obviously it's such a prestigious club, prestigious academy, and so many players have gone through that academy to, to play at a senior level. So for me, in terms of observations and my understanding and the methodology that the club used was, was really unique. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I've listened to a lot of podcast appearances that you've done in prepping for this. So I know this is a question that you get asked all the time. And um, I, I do think it, there is value in asking it because I think when you get someone who has obviously spent a huge amount of time coaching in England and then someone who moves across to Spain and it experiences the Spanish um, system and the Spanish approach, there's always going to be questions about how those two things compare. So I, I would be really interested to hear your thoughts on what you think the, the biggest differentiators are between the way that that coaching is is conceived of and and is enacted in England versus Spain. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very easy one for me because it just is so apparent the the tactical focus that you have here in Spain is really delivered really from a young age. You know, I can remember when I came out here the first time uh, in 2015-2016 and I went to watch sessions at Rio and and Madrid. Just you know, I'm watching eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds doing phases of play, tactical work. And I can remember at the time just thinking, you know, just, just you would, if I delivered these types of sessions in England, my my phase lead would come up to me and say, what are you doing? Um, and I was watching them all these sessions and I was like, this is so interesting. This is really good. You know, these are sessions that I would expect to see under 14s, 15s, 16s, seniors do it. And I'm seeing the Spanish do it with their youngest age groups. Um, obviously, the technical side here, as you see, and, and I, I think whenever you look at the senior teams, I think it's so clear and apparent that when I give this answer, it's so easy then to see how that actually translates to how the senior teams play. Because you look at the Spanish teams, technically, the players are so, so good. They are so elite. Tactically, they are at the top. You know, they really, really are. And you can see that all the way through. It's not just a golden generation. It's not just a number of players that just are good. You know, it is culturally here, technique, tactical aspects. And it is, it is all the clubs drilled in from, from really young ages. And I think that for me is, is something I've really taken out from my experiences here so far as, okay, this is, this is a factor to why the Spanish national team and Spanish players are so good in that because they're just exposed to it for such a long period of time through their through their pathway. Do you think that's an attitude you'll take forward with you wherever you're coaching in the future, this idea that if you are working with, with kids within a club, it is important to instill them with tactical ideas, obviously not overloading them, but, but actually getting them a sense of what will be expected for them, especially, I suppose, at these elite clubs, right, where the idea is this is a pathway to get them to the first team. You do a lot of the hard yards early on in their in their careers, making making them tactically aware uh, and, and being able to then slot in as they go up the system. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I feel I, I have, you know, in my armoury and in my experiences that I can add to a club that maybe isn't doing that, if you like. 
Um, obviously, you always need to, as, as, a, as a youth coach, depending on the club, and generally it's more so in this way that the club have a clear methodology of how they want to work. And obviously, culturally, it's, it's different. How successful that would be, for example, doing some of those sessions with players of the same age in England, for example, or in a different country, you might get a little bit of pushback from people who are not used to that way. So that is something that if I go back at some point to England, that I would like to try to to add in because I do see a lot of value in that. And I think it's a case of edu- educating those people that are in charge and, and, and model, you know, and create those mef- methodologies and the philosophy of, of how you develop players and hopefully try to transfer that across. But as you say, it's a balance. And I think ultimately it kind of depends on where you want those players to be mm. when they get to senior level. I'm perhaps jumping a little bit ahead here because I think this is something that you talk about a little bit more in the context of Atleti. But you use the word periodization quite a lot um, when you were talking. I think this is on Gary Kinnean's uh, podcast, the Modern Soccer Podcast. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you mean by periodization there. And, and is that a really good way of actually getting the kids more tactically in tune? Um, just not not necessarily by explicitly saying, right, kids, sit down, we're going to do some tactics, but just getting them in tune with the idea that tactical realities exist and will be important for them if they go through the elite pathway. Um, as, as they go, you know, you're just sort of instilling them with tactical ideas just through the way that you're structuring your, your processes. Well, I, I think that's quite a key point that you've just mentioned there. I think to try and do it as sort of subconsciously as, as possible. I think, you know, without... Um, draining and giving too much in, in information to the players, especially in youth development, it's about similar messages, but often until they're able to take on board that information and it becomes second nature. And I think that's the that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in, in youth development because you know you could be doing one practice working on a specific aspect, and I take probably uh, body shape for example. Because body shape in, in youth development football is, is something I think most coaches spend weeks and weeks and months trying to get their players to do. And it's still very difficult. And I think as, as a coach, you have to just keep reiterating those same messages. But the earlier that you put those elements into your sessions, obviously the sooner that those players become accustomed to that. And I think that's where the tactical aspects, if you can get some of those aspects done from an early age, the players then don't know any different. It, they just know that that is the way that they need to be. So if we don't work on body shape, if we don't work on switching play, if we don't work on some of these tactical aspects until we think maybe they're ready, then we might have missed some of those windows to, to bed that information in before. And you can do it in those younger age groups because technically they're also going to benefit from that, especially when you look at receiving. And receiving in football is such an important part you know we look at scanning body shape being able to see a lot of the pitch make good decisions all of that is all inter- intertwined and linked together if a player has a good body shape or if they have the ability to to keep scanning those things if you get can get into the players at an early age their their decision making improves their technical decision improves because they know what they're going to do next so i think you know like you said to me before those tactical aspects if you can get into the players early enough but not be too forceful and not talk about it too much and you're a little bit subconscious in in how you deliver that hopefully then 
the players become more accustomed to that. And then ultimately then the more fine details you want to explain to the players when they're older then becomes easier. Mm. One of the things that my good friend Bernardo Cueva likes to tell me, he's one of the coaches at Brentford, is that one of the coaches' jobs is to actually protect players from information. Um, is that something that you think is important at, at youth level in particular, where, you're, you're again, you're trying to avoid overloading them by talking at them, but actually make them do it and, and, and instill it, just almost like tricking them into it? Yeah, I mean, we had different uh, processes in, in the different clubs that I worked in England. Um, and I, I go back to my, my time at Colts United because we, we actually did this very, very well. Uh, we generally had, for the players, uh, the players would have one in-possession target for the, for the match. They'd also have an out-of-possession target for the match, for them as individuals. And each player would have their own individual in and out-of-possession target. Then the team would have an in-possession target and an out-of-possession target. Um, not all the clubs that I've been at have that, or they didn't when I was there. And that was something that I think from from Coach Knight when I was there, I really, really enjoyed. And you, you do need to give the players a focus for their own individual development. But as you say, if you give the players too much information, they end up just getting confused in all of the information that you give. And I've gone through different times where before a game, half time, you know, how much information do you give? How much time do you talk to those players? And I think sometimes as coaches, we can talk too long. And actually, the first message that you're saying is the most important message because you said first, but then you've carried on talking for two, three, four minutes. And the first message that you actually really wanted the players to get has gone in all of the minutes that you've just spent. Um, so in some of the team talks that we, we do, we talk for a couple of minutes max and then review and go, right, what are our in-possession targets? What are our out-of-possession targets? What are our transitional targets? Or what are the two key things we're going to look at in this, in this next half, for example? And just remind the players, right, this is our focus. I've taken you off on a massive tan tangent, but uh, let's go back to your life story. Because at this point, you go back to England, you go to Southampton and you do a PGCE. And, the, and for the listeners who aren't English, that is a teaching qualification. Obviously, that's all in order for you to eventually end up back in Spain uh, yep. in order to have a teaching qualification so that you can go and work there and carry on your, your journey in Spain. But whilst you're there, you're working with Southampton and you work with the, 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 the young girls teams there. Yep. Um, talk to us a little bit about the, your experience of working with the girls. I think that's that the first time you'd worked with, with girls at that point? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I was, um, I actually look back at it really lucky, like to, to be able to then come back uh, from, from Spain. And I, as you say, I knew then I wanted to go back to Spain in the future. I knew the best way of, of having a good salary and, and position here in Spain would be to, to be as a qualified teacher. Got uh, a position with the Girls Academy at Southampton and the 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 support the environment of the girls program at Saints was elite it was really really elite a lot of support had been put in from the club uh, the coaches the technical director at the club was extremely extremely high level and I'd just been fortunate enough to come into an environment that was adjacent with the boys academy similar methodology similar structure similar ideas similar intensity and uh, it was a great four years at the club. Um, worked with a technical director for a couple of years called Lois. And 
her standards, her drive, her intensity for the players, for us as coaches, was exceptionally high. And she is a professional that has really pushed me on as a coach. And it probably wasn't until after she left that I really reviewed and took away so many key things that she imparted with with us and, and with myself. Let's go back to Spain then. So you you obviously end up um, moving to Spain. I think you did a couple of years in Southampton working at school and then you yep. get a job as, um, uh, I think, teaching in, in Spain as well. Is that right? Yeah, so I got a job in a private school here in Madrid um, as, a, as a PE teacher, uh, a new school, just as sort of COVID was still still about. So it was a little bit of a crazy time to, to move. But yeah, I was fortunate enough to get a really good teaching job uh, as PE teacher in in well in my current school here in Madrid, and let's talk about then the the process whereby you start off as a PE teacher and you end up as a, a an assistant coach for the I think it's the under twelves at Atletico Madrid, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I first came over um, and I didn't know anyone, didn't have any contacts or connections. Actually, managed to make a contact through through Twitter. Uh, she was working in the, in the female game here, so kind of I started with started with her. Um, straight off the plane and, and doing some coaching with uh, with the women's team, which was really really good good experience. Um, I actually had to stop that in the end because when I got here, I was a little bit misinformed in terms of the coaching pathway, in terms of the licenses here in Spain. Um, and basically, I was then told I needed to have a C one level of Spanish to be able to. Um, sign up for the UEFA A licence, which is one of the big reasons to why I came here uh, to Spain. Um, Realised that a C1 level in Spanish is extremely high. It's, it's almost our level of, of English. So I decided at the time that my coaching needed to take a little bit of a back seat. I spent then weeks and months just solely focused on, on learning the language. Then in my second year here, I got a little bit bored of not coaching. Uh, found found a grassroots club here near my school, near where I lived. Didn't have to travel very far, uh, so I started coaching. Started coaching there uh, in a boys' team under thirteens. Uh, started there, and then through a contact that I made in Australia, uh, then this opportunity at Aleti basically came up. Mm, yeah, and I remember you telling me that. Um... It was your birthday, I think, when when eventually you got the the, the final call through. You, I think, you had a, an interview with them at one point, and, and you did it in Spanish. You were very brave, and they offered you a English or a Spanish interview. Yeah. And you actually ended up doing it in Spanish, but they said work on your Spanish a bit more, and, and we'll get back to you. And then you eventually found out about it on your on your birthday. So talk, yeah, talk us about that. That's a fun part of the story, right? Yeah, no, it was it was pretty cool. Um, I made. Uh, I did a, a few visits over to Australia uh, pre-COVID and, and, and made a contact out there uh, who was a Spanish coach who'd, who'd just gone to, to, to Brisbane. Um, so got to know him. He then put me, um, well, I actually then got back in contact with him when I got to Madrid. He uh, passed my details on to a guy who was working at Real with the under-18s. So I've been chatting to this guy at Real for about a year. Um, and then... He actually then passed my details on to my current boss at Aleti. He then gets in contact with me and says, oh, you know, I, I, I hear, you're, hear you're in Madrid. Uh, it'd be good to have a, have a chat with you. So we have a, have a Zoom chat 
he says, oh, you know, it'd be good to good to get to know you and have a little bit of a chat and see maybe if something can happen in the future. And as you say, he sort of said to me, you know, do you want to do the interview in, in English or Spanish? And you know, I said to you before, it's like, well, I'm, I'm in Spain. I'd, I'd one, feel it'd be a bit disrespectful if I tried to speak in English. And two, if I'm trying to get a coaching job in Spanish, it just, for me, makes no logic for me to try and then talk in, in English. So I did it in Spanish. I did the whole interview in, in Spanish, although fairly broken and not perfect. And he said, look, let's keep in touch. Uh, really brave for doing it in Spanish, but at the moment, you're not quite where I want you to be. We kept in touch. I saw him a few times, went and watched different sessions because at that point I was like, okay, there seems like there could be an opening at some point in the future with Atleti. So I was like, right, I'll go watch some sessions, get to know him a bit more, learn a little bit about the, the club, the methodology, etc." And then we had some more chats ongoing through that year. And then it got to that sort of time where they were starting to decide about the following season. So we had another another meeting and they said, look, I don't quite yet know what the openings are going to be like for next season. Um, but I'm really happy with where you are with your language and we'll be in touch. Um, and I can remember I was on um, playground duty at school uh, on, on my birthday um, and I get this phone call come through and it's, it's Ivan. Uh, and I said to my, uh, my, the guy who was in reception, because I was confident with the language, but on the phone, it's really tough. The phone, I don't like it. Now I'm fine. But on the phone, it's really difficult to be 100% clear. So uh, I got my, I got my friend from school at, in reception to come with me, answered the phone. I said, look, listen, listen, and just make sure that I'm understanding everything correctly. He said, look, We've got an opening. Uh, we want you to come on board. Uh, I don't quite know exactly where you're going to fit in just yet, but we know there's going to be a space for you. Uh, we'll give you some more information in the, in the coming weeks. But yeah, from September, we'd like you to be with, with us, um, which was a, a very surreal moment for sure. Obviously, we're going to talk about Atletico Madrid, but before we do, obviously, the Sp Spanish has be been a massive part of your journey, like the language itself. Um you have recently had to give a presentation in Spanish as part of your A license course, which you're currently on, um, and, and and obviously you've you've had to develop the the ability to to basically fluently speak Spanish. How has the experience of coaching in a foreign language made you aware of how important good communication is uh, in coaching? Um, and do you think that learning Spanish has actually helped you to communicate in English when when you coach? coaching English as well. I, I think this is a, a really interesting topic that isn't really discussed very much. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's very tough, um, you know, to have to have a second language and to be regularly using it, coaching in it. Um, now, I mean, there I, I had some really tough days, tough weeks where you come away from sessions and... You, you're just kind of thinking, well, I didn't say that very well. I could have said that better. And I guess it just makes you really strip down and think about the language you use and how simple you need it to be to then explain exactly what you want. Uh, and I would prepare and visualise. And I guess this is probably something that you probably wouldn't see, but before sessions, I knew when I was going to be coaching, I knew the, the parts of the sessions that I was going to be doing. And because I've, I've coached some of these practices and you've, you've been in the game long enough, I knew some of the 
aspects of the session that would probably fall down and I knew some of the challenges that players would have. So I prepared before the sessions, right, I think the players might ask me these questions. I think I'm going to need to re-explain this. I might need to use this language. So then I would get those banks of words, those phrases prepared and ready and spend a bit of time before the session trying to help memorise some of those phrases so that when those moments arose and and they arose, that I was able to then use that work that I'd done before and it come out a little bit smoother. Um, I mean, of course, there were moments where it didn't come out perfectly well um, <laughs> and, th- and those moments are tough, but that preparation in the language was key and I, I think then it really breaks down and re- you have to reevaluate the language, the words you use and how much you use. So Atletico Madrid, you've worked for a lot of very good clubs in your career, but Atletico Madrid is right at the elite level. So what 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 have you noticed working at a really elite club in, in terms of the processes they have and the way that they think about the game and how they articulate and communicate the game to their players? I mean, it's, it's, it's elite. It is really, really professional, as you'd expect. The standards are very, very high, uh, which I like. The demand on us as coaches the demand on the players, uh, the intensity of the sessions, you know, the, the timings are super, super important. You know, if if my boss or the coordinator turns up to the session and we haven't moved on, he, he could look at the timings and it be one minute past and we would need to have moved on. You know, we, we the club, I can't go into too much detail, but we, we work on a four-phase model and everyone knows at exactly what minute what practice should be being worked on when it should be how that practice should be how it should look what type of practice it should be a little bit kind of what we were saying before in terms of the periodization you know we have set types of practices that we have to do in different moments of each session different moments of each week etc um so you know our coordinators know what the sessions should should look like, and I think those standards that that they have for us as coaches, that the club has, is is vital to saying that we are at the best club in the world. We are Atletico de Madrid. Our standards are here. We want to be here, uh, and that is that. That's it. That like we we need to be there. We we will get there. We have to be there, and every single session is. Hundred percent. Hmm. Now, the big story about your move to Spain was it finally allowed you to get a, a UEFA A license or get on the UEFA A license? Um, I mentioned this right at the beginning of the podcast. We're nearly an hour now, and I've not even mentioned it, so we should get on this. <laughs> but you put out, you've got a tweet uh, pinned to your profile, um, documenting your UEFA A application story. So you've got there four attempts, three in England, one in Scotland, uh, and you never managed to actually get accepted on the UEFA A course. Um, and then in 2020, you leave England to, to pursue your coaching career. And obviously, eventually, attempt five in Spain uh, through the RFEF, you, you're able to get on that on that course. T- tell us a little bit about that. I mean, th- clearly, that's it seems to me prohibitive that, that the easiest way for you to get the A license was for you to go through go learn Spanish, go and live in another country and get to a level where you're able to com- complete the course in, in, in Spain? Yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a crazy way uh, to, to have to do it. Um, but I guess, honestly, I just 
got to a point where I was frustrated, I was tired, and I really didn't see, if I'm honest, any possibility in the next five, ten years where I could almost guarantee that I would be on the A licence in England. And I just got to a point where right, I, I just cannot leave my career development, my professional development to chance because I know how many people apply for the A license. I know how many tweets I see on Twitter every year of people, again, posting how frustrated they are, not getting on a course, etc., etc. And I, I, I guess for me, it was just a case of, look, I'm going to put it in my court. I'm actually going to do something that I know would help me. Not only, you know, coming to Spain wasn't only just a, a football decision. It was also a life decision. I wanted to come somewhere where... I enjoy the life here in Spain. Um, I really did see a pathway to be able to, being able to do my qualifications here in, in Spain. And ultimately, that was where, where I got to. Um, obviously, you get so many sort of knockbacks. And I know when I spoke to different people on, on the A licences that I applied for, there was roughly about 90 to 100 places on the UEFA in England. And I think I was told there was roughly about seven to eight hundred people applying for those those places. So of course, you know it's very different. I was working in the female game for some of that some of that time, and we were told a priority would be given to people who are in the female game. I felt I was in a really good position, and again, you don't get the you don't get the, the chance to get on it. And ultimately, you know it's a bit crazy. You have to go to a different country, learn a different language uh, to be able to get on the course. But you know. You know just as well as I do the football landscape, and I looked at it and think, well, actually, if I come to Spain, get a second language, have my UEFA, you know, the the the, the learning that that per- person gives me, and how multicultural football is nowadays, mm-hmm. I just saw it as a win-win. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be arguing that you know, the <laughs> career pathway that you've taken has not been uh, absolutely brilliant um, and, and, and has furnished you with a lot more than going through the A licence in England would have done. Why do you think it's so hard for coaches now who, who are going through the system to get on the A licence course beyond the fact that it's, it, it's obviously overly, overly subscribed? Is it, do you think that there is preferential treatment to people who are, are considered, uh, I, I guess, higher profile, etc.? It's really tough. It's really tough. And I guess if you asked all the people that had been given a, a rejection, they would probably ask for the same in terms of transparency. And you're never you're never going to get that. There's no way of there's there's just no way of knowing. Um, obviously, if you're working at a really high level or you get a job, and and this is some ways that people got around it. You know, they would get a, a job at a club. Uh, and then EPPP was there and it became a requirement that these staff got on the course. That It just had to happen. So those places were sort of already given to people that had been given a job. They didn't have the correct licence or the, the correct level to, to do that job. But then the club sort of was like, well, we're going to get you in and the FA will have to, they'll have to get you on the course because it's a requirement. So then... You know, if, if you're not one of those that get one of those full-time jobs for that sort of, then it then it becomes really difficult, and um, you you end up with just so many people. You know, not enough courses. So many people want to progress, and it's very complicated for so many people out there that are all stuck on the same level. And like like you alluded to before, you know, I I done my B license, 
when I was 19, 20. I'm now 36. Uh, so I've had to wait a very, very long time to do the next badge. And I can remember Peter Vivian, when I completed my B license, and he signed me off. I think he put on my sheets and give it one to two years and do your A license. And of course, just it's just not possible. Yeah, and as I alluded to before as well, it feels as though the qualification route has actually been very, you know, supplemental to anything that you've done. You've not needed to do the A license to get to the position you've got to. Most of the learning that you've done to become the coach that you are today was done outside of the the remit of the qualification. So, to to what extent do you feel as though that 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 means that the qualification route isn't actually servicing? English football, in, in your case, as someone who went through the English FA um, and is, is stopping us from actually getting the benefit of having really good coaches getting to the highest level simply by dint of the fact that we don't have the provision to get play, uh, coaches through the, the qualification pathway quickly enough. Yeah. You know, for me, it was always a case about finding ways that I can keep better improving myself. And the Spanish pathway and coming to Spain was, was very much that. I got frustrated by not being able to do my A licence in England I also wanted to better understand a different methodology of, of football. So for me, there's there's really not many better places than than Spain in terms of the methodology, that approach. Obviously, having the perks of being able to now do do the A license here, it all just fitted in really well. And I think for coaches, there's always different ways and different uh, options that you can have to move forward. It's about trying to find how you can do that for you and. Uh, I don't have children at the moment. I'm not tied down to some of those things that I know a lot of people are, um, which has given me some of that flexibility, I guess, where a lot of people don't have that and it's a lot harder for people. I'm a qualified teacher, so I get the option to to effectively live in any country in the world that I want to live in. If I want to now go and learn Italian, I could move to Milan as a PE teacher and then do exactly the same, go and learn Italian, start to network, get involved in an Italian team in, in Milan, for example, and broaden my experiences more if I desire to do that in the future. So your vehicle, and I guess teaching is a little bit of my vehicle to help me go to some of you know these options um, to help further myself because I just felt in England, I just got to a point where there was a bit of a glass ceiling and I needed, I needed to break through that. And for me, that was that was Spain. Well, Simon, I find you really, really inspirational. Um, I've taken way too much of your time up as well. Uh, but maybe one final question, if we can, and that's talking about the future. What, what do you see the future looking like for you? What direction do you see yourself moving in, in the next few years? Because so much of your career so far has been going and doing something new, going and doing something different. So what's, what do you think the next step is going to be for you? I mean, really, uh, uh, my, my focus is, and I should hopefully have my A licence signed off in the next month or two. I'm just waiting for the, the sixth month window uh, to, to, to close. After that, my objective would be to try and work towards then the, the pro licence. Uh, and I'd like to try and to do that here in, in Spain if it, if it fits. Really, you know, I, I think uh, it's probably a little bit of a... Um, an easy, easy answer. But really, you know, football, you know what football's like. Um, things can change very suddenly. Um, I could be out of a job, you know, tomorrow, you know, what football's like. Um, but really for me, the, the project, the journey, keep improving, keep learning, keep challenging, challenging myself is really for me 
what I base a lot of my choices and decisions on to keep improving myself as a, as a person, keep improving myself from a, a professional football perspective. And if at some point in the future, someone comes to me and says, look, we've, we've got this project for you. Would you be interested? Who knows? Maybe. Uh, but really at the moment, to, to be involved at such a big club here in Madrid, I'm, I'm really happy. Um, so at the moment, it's it's one of those, you're not quite sure, you know, football's always an interesting one. But as I said, I just want to keep improving, learning. And when the time is right to, to look at something, then that will that will arrive in front of me and then I'll have to, I'll have to decide. Yeah, well, if we learn anything from your career, it's that every step that you've taken forward has been a step upwards. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how that all pans out for you. If our listeners want to follow some of the stuff that you're putting out, you are on Twitter at Simon Goody. Uh, you have a website, simongoody.net. No doubt you can get contacted through there as well. But, Simon, yeah, thank sure. you so much for giving us so much of your time today. I really appreciate you coming on. No, I really appreciate it. And hopefully it helps a few people out there in terms of their coaching pathway. And uh, if I can inspire or motivate one person to go down the coaching pathway or, or even move abroad then I'm very happy As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.